Welcome to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. I'm Amy Hall, and I'm here with Greg Kokel, and we're here to answer your questions. Hello, Greg. Amos, it's been a while, it seems, <laughs> since we've done something together. We both had vacations, but uh, people don't know that because they just hear us week to week. That's but right. Good to see you. You too, Greg. Let's start with a question from Scott Nelson. Why did Jesus state in Matthew 26 that it would be better that Judas not be born for betraying him when this action was foretold and a necessary step for the salvation of all mankind? Without these wrongs, God would not have have his rescue plan. Right. I, I think in that passage, he is speaking with regards to Judas and not to the big plan, you know, unless I'm misunderstanding so, the question. I, I think the question is, why is it better if Judas would never be born at all? Why would he say that if it was necessary for him to have done Well, that? this is what this is. Okay, well, then I did understand it mm -hmm. correctly. And my point is, I think that Jesus is talking about specifically Judas's own predicament. This man is going to suffer for the wrong that he has committed. And uh, in light of that, it would have been better for him had he not been born. And yes, it's better for all mankind, given the larger plan for salvation, though I don't know that it was necessary for salvation's sake that Jesus be betrayed in order to die for our sins. I mean, God has his own reasons for why he worked it out that way. But um, in God's grand scheme of things, this was a piece of the puzzle. All right, and it accomplished a great good. An evil thing accomplished a great good. Um, the same comment could be made about the devil. Uh, it would have been better for the devil, considering his ultimate fate, that for him he never been created. Um, but nevertheless, given the fact that the devil rebelled against God, God decided to use that rebellion in a larger plan to bring glory to himself. And uh, so in the big plan, it's not better. In the, in the, um, it's not better that either of them sin, but in their, in their individual, am I saying that right? It, in the larger plan, God works all of those things for a greater good, okay? Let me say it that way. But in their individual cases, it's not better for them. It would have been better if they had never been born, because their eternal fate is now damnation. It's interesting when Tim Barnett and I wrote our multi-piece solid ground on the issue of hell. This was one of the points that we made, that, uh, that for many people, hell is just oblivion. Of many Christians, that there's a uh, annihilation and there is no eternal suffering. But one thing we pointed out is that's the view of the atheist, <laughs> that he dies and he's gone. There's no, there's no eternal consciousness for him, and they seem fine with that. And secondly, what do we make of Jesus' comment of uh, uh, regarding Judas that was just cited? that it would have been better had he not been born. Had he not been born, then there would be no eternal existence in which he would suffer God's wrath. So there must be an eternal suffering of God's wrath, or it makes no sense of Jesus' 
point about Judas. So I think Jesus is just simply talking there about Judas's experience, and he is not making reference to the grand plan. I could be mistaken about mm-hmm. that, but that's the way it seems to me. And just in case there's an element within this question of how is this fair, <laughs> how how is it that that Judas is being punished to the point where it would have been better for him to have never been born. If that was necessary for, for what God wanted to do, that was good. And and all I can say to this is that we see this over and over in Scripture, that people are held responsible for their evil, even when God is using that evil to accomplish something good overall. So, for example, um, here's a passage from Isaiah 10, 5 through 12. And in this passage... God uses Assyria mm-hmm. to punish Israel. So here's what he says. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So here we see he's using Assyria as his rod mm-hmm. to punish to accomplish a good, right. his justice. And then he says, yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. So there he says, I'm doing it because this is my justice. They're doing it because their purpose is to destroy. Right. And then he says, so it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Mm -hmm. So there we see this playing out again, God using someone's evil for a good purpose, but because they did not intend that good purpose because they were actually doing evil, it's still right for them to be punished, even though Mm -hmm. they were being used by God to do something good. You know, I think what you're describing here, and I'm glad you're pointing this out, um, is one of the thorniest difficulties for for Christianity in the biblical worldview is understanding this relationship and and uh, kind of balancing this relationship between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And um, I've always held that the most difficult, in a certain sense, apologetics issues are not the external ones, but the internal ones. It's the 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 mysteries of of these kinds of things, these conundrums that are hard to make sense of. It isn't whether God exists or whether the uh, Jesus rose from the dead or the Bible is historically accurate or morals are relative or all those other kinds of issues that we deal with. Those all can be dealt with. There are answers to all of those things that make sense, that comport with common sense, that fit our common experience, that that uh, that seem sound. Now, this is an issue, though, that is more challenging, I think. And a lot of the issues that I think are challenging are the internal theological ones. They're intramural kind of concerns, not uh, not external challenges from others. They're still important, but uh, it's just a curiosity. It's not the outside stuff, it's the inside stuff that, for, for me, is more challenging. Mm-hmm. All right, Greg, let's go on to a question from Caleb. Everyone seems to have their own view of what justice is, social justice, racial justice, etc. What is the biblical definition of justice? You know, it's interesting that um, John Noyes has just been writing about this and actually did a whole 
STRU on the issue of justice. And um, the, the justice biblically is can be can be I guess captured in the way that I think it's Paul or maybe Peter, I sometimes get these passages mixed up. You'll know I describes the uh, delegated role of government. And when God delegates authority to government, he gives them authority to do justice. And the, um, the, the way it's described is that the government is ordained by God for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Um, actually, I think the notion of justice uh, is a common sense notion that people in the past were not confused by. The problem is, in the last 50 years, the political left has, um, has imposed Marxist notions on the concept of justice. Okay, and and uh, and so so justice to the poor means a redistribution of wealth. Why? Well, because people are poor in virtue of the a system that is unjust towards them. To put it differently, the fact that they're poor is evidence of injustice because everyone should share in all the goods equally, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's a Marxist doctrine, okay? Since this has deeply influenced people, um, when there are people in poverty, that is that is characterized as an act of injustice itself that needs to be remedied. This is not a biblical view. The Bible does talk about the issue of justice regarding the poor and the widows and things like that, the orphan. But the, the point in the Scripture, when you look closely, you see this. It doesn't treat poverty as an injustice. It treats poverty-stricken people as those who are vulnerable since they're poor and don't have power or privilege, vulnerable to injustice by others. It doesn't say that the being poor is an injustice. It says do not do injustice to the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. So there's a very, very different concept there. Nowadays, of course, since that term justice, which is a noble-sounding word, it has a uh, a a, a, a um, appealing connotation to it that has a certain feel to the word. It is then being employed for other purposes, even though the word, the connotation, is being employed for other purposes. The denotation has changed. That is, the definition has changed. And so, um, I mean, justice itself, yes, we want to do justice. Um, so social justice, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, where in your understanding of what you call social justice is genuine injustice being done? The latest use of the term, uh, well, reproductive justice, that means killing babies, the liberty to kill babies. That's all it means. Reproductive justice is the pro-abortion view, but it's the way it's characterized, okay? The latest, and to me, the screwiest characterization of this is environmental justice. 
we are doing an injustice to the environment somehow, climate change or whatever. Um, and so since people that are virtuous care about justice, now they think since the word justice is applied to environmental considerations, then uh, then it, they are obliged to follow that particular uh, agenda, as it were. Now, I'm not against taking care of the environment, but I don't think that we owe something to the environment so that if we, you know, pour concrete somewhere, we are violating Mother Nature in some sense. We are doing her an injustice. No, I think care for the environment is a stewardship that we have by God with regards to other people. We don't litter, in my view, not because Mother Nature cares about trash. She doesn't. We don't litter because we care about other people who have to live uh, in our communities and in our environs and things like that. So uh, I see justice as associated with people, and it has to do with the punishment of evildoers and the praise of, do, of those who do right. It doesn't have to do with almost anything else the culture is talking about right now. And I think it was Dennis Prager who made the observation that whenever you add an adjective— to the word justice, you corrupt it. Social justice, sexual justice, reproductive justice, uh, environmental justice, or whatever. Now it becomes something entirely different. Why not just justice? I think you've touched on something really important that I think is going on here, Greg, and that's the idea of using the word justice because it has good feelings mm -hmm. and and feelings of rightness. And that's the way our culture uses language now. Right. They use words because they want to evoke certain feelings, not because they're not trying to make actual arguments using specific real definitions of things. They're trying to manage words so that they can convince people to be on their side. That's right. So or what they, convince that something ignoble is noble. That could be too, I mean, yes. the classic example is the word gay. I mean, it's, people don't even think about it now. For 50 years, it's been used to describe homosexuality. But there's an example of taking something nefarious and giving it a, a pleasant-sounding name, mm -hmm. gay rights. Okay? We're just now talking about the rhetorical maneuver here, uh, not whether gays ought to have rights or not. Of course, they're human beings. <laughs> this is another case. Humans have rights. Okay? Homosexuals, as humans, have rights. They don't have rights as gays. That's irrelevant. So this is another case where, like I said, you start adding those adjectives and you end up perverting the notion. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Amy. I cut you off. It's okay. So, so what we see here is people adding this word justice to other things, like you mentioned, environmental justice or reproductive justice, because they want that feeling of this is the right thing. That's right. Rather than using it the way it's meant to be used. And so... I even see Christians falling into this, using the word justice to mean whatever is good, whatever we should do, they right. call it justice. But that is not what justice is. As you pointed out, in its simplest form, justice is giving people what they're owed, mm -hmm. whether it's punishment or reward. It's giving people what they have earned, what they are owed. And it's different from mercy. I mean, you look at Micah 6, 8. What, is, what does God require of you but to do justly and to love mercy? Those are two different things. Right. Justice is what's owed. Mercy is what we're required to show, but
but it's not owed to them. It's required of us, but that doesn't make it justice. And mm-hmm. the reason why I, I I get so concerned about this misuse of the word is that if we do not understand the difference between justice and mercy and grace, there's no way we can understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. If we think justice is grace, justice is giving people things that that they need or they want or they or is good for us to give them, how is the gospel not justice? How do you not call the gospel justice? It's it's a total misrepresentation of the word. Mm-hmm. We need to understand what is owed to us so that we can understand the difference between that and grace. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the gospel means nothing. Well, we don't the whole point of the gospel is that we do not get the justice we deserve. We get the grace we don't exactly. deserve because Jesus took the justice for us. Exactly. As our representative, as our substitute. But if justice is changed to mean me giving you some, me, me, um, you know, giving you charity or giving you good in things. In an obligatory way. And that's yes, the point. Yes, I mean, yes. if justice is obligatory, then charity becomes obligatory, mercy becomes obligatory, and therefore it's no longer what charity and mercy actually are. Right. And then and then God owes us salvation. Yeah. It's a whole—the meaning of words matters. Right. And people—I I think, especially as Christians, we need to pay close attention and use words the way that they should be used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's squeeze one more in here. Okay. Greg. This one comes from Cogito McFly. (laughs) In a roundtable discussion in our church, I was criticized for pointing out false teachings of a TV evangelist when their ideas were advanced. I used knowledge, wisdom, character, and tactics addressing the ideas, but was tagged as being, quote, unloving a Christian brother. Thoughts? Well, this is really frustrating, and I talk about this actually in Chapter 2 of the Tactics book. And that is, the point I make broadly is that arguments are good. And there are, I don't mean quarrels. What I mean is is a thoughtful um, conversations about what is true. And that means one has to sometimes disagree with other people and give the reasons why. If disputes like this are considered unloving, then there is no there is there, there there's no way for the church to stay on track with truth. Now, Paul tells Titus that uh, Titus chapter one that 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 the role of elders is in part to refute those who um, teach unsound doctrine. For, as Paul puts it, they must be silenced. So a role of spiritual leadership, and not only spirit, that's an obligation of leadership there, but it's also a responsibility of Christians as well in being discerning and, and separating truth from error— um, is is to is to find the wrong, identify the wrong for the protection of the body of Christ. Okay. Now, ironically, what um, th- this Christian brother experienced falls under the uh, uh, suicide tactic category. 
because he was accused of being unloving for pointing out some things that TV evangelists were doing that were wrong. And I suspect, in his case, he was probably right on top of something that needed to be addressed. Okay, so what was the response? It's not loving to do that. Not loving to do what? It's not loving to correct another brother. Really? Then why are you correcting me and being unloving? You see, the, the person who's raising the objection is doing the exact same thing. And the irony is, probably in the case of the brother who is criticizing the TV evangelist or raising issue with them, he was probably dealing with something really, really substantive. In this case, you got a bunch of misguided Christians that are challenging him, doing the same thing that uh, they're telling him he shouldn't be doing to others, on a non-substantive matter. It is unloving to say somebody's wrong. Really? What? It, it, well, you could tell I'm frustrated just thinking about it. I mean, I mean, this happened to me on the radio once. It's in the book. Somebody said, it's wrong for you to criticize Christian leaders on the air. I said, well, then why are you criticizing me as Christian leader on the air? I mean, it's an obvious self-refuting kind of comment. The fact is, we have an obligation to be careful um, about uh, guarding the flock. That is the explicit responsibility of spiritual leaders in the Church, but it is also our broader responsibility. You know that Paul, I think it's in 2 Timothy, uh, mentions two people by name, or maybe three. The coppersmith, you know, and then a couple of others that are teaching bad things or treated him wrongly, beware of them. So if Paul can do that, why, why is it wrong for us to do that? Well, he, he, that's Paul. Well, wait, a, wait a minute. Your claim is that criticizing somebody like that is just unloving. So isn't, isn't Paul unloving? Jesus did the same thing. Jesus, you know, it's interesting, uh, the turn the other cheek business there in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was slapped, he didn't turn the other cheek. He said, if I, at his trial, he said, if I have done wrong, bear witness to the wrong. If I haven't, then why did you strike me? In other words, he held the person publicly accountable for the wrong thing that person did. So, as I, th I think what this shows, in part, is that when Jesus was referring to turn the other cheek in the Sermon on the Mount, he was referring to something different, uh, because that isn't what happened when he was slapped. But notice that Jesus is calling someone to account for their behavior that is wrong, and this someone in leadership position, and um, and it's appropriate for him to do that. And it is for us as well. And indeed, the, those who challenge this brother, <laughs> at least in some measure, think it's appropriate because they challenge him and accused him of being unloving. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Okay, but rejoices in the truth. First Corinthians thirteen. For some reason, there are a lot of Christians who miss this, and um, it might be that people do criticize in an unloving manner. Our brother here was careful to say, "Look, and I was, uh, I, I was careful about the way I did it as a good ambassador." And the nature of the objection wasn't that he criticized in an unloving way, but that his criticism itself was unloving. Criticism itself is unloving, 
Okay, this leaves the church with no protection. It is rank foolishness. Mm -hmm. I think also lurking behind this whole situation is something similar to the question we just responded to, and that is the Christians have bought into the culture's understanding of love. Mm. For our culture, if you disagree with someone, you are disagreeing with their expression of their own identity and their self and their views. You are you're doing something that is denigrating to them as persons. I think the term is dissing. <laughs> That's the way it's taken. Yeah. So what's happened is that we've bought into that. And so instead of following all the things that you mentioned that are in the Bible, the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, the passage where the elders are told to refute those who teach false doctrine. Or speak the truth in love. Cetera, exactly. We have bought into the idea that disagreeing with people and contradicting people is unloving. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think your church needs to start. If your church is doing this, this is where you need to start. What does love mean? Why don't we look at the Bible and see how God treats error, how Jesus treated error, how Paul treated error? All these things matter when we're figuring out what it means to love. Because this is a huge issue right now where the word has been taken to mean something else and yeah. we have bought into it. Yeah. If Jesus was the most loving, take a look at the way he acted, especially towards, and by the way, I was just going to say, especially towards his opposition, which is true, but it was not just towards his opposition, it was also towards his own disciples. He was frustrated all the time with them and he expressed it. You know, so. Um, I think it's, there's a proverb that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, all right? In other words, the the what, friendship requires that we speak, as Paul puts it, the truth in love, even when it's not popular. And it's also required for the protection of the church. Your observation is spot on, Amy. What has happened is that Christians have absorbed a worldly understanding of what love is, and if you disagree with somebody or say someone else is wrong, by the way, they're not even in their presence. It isn't like it's face-to-face -face with this evangelist. The fellow's saying, look at folks, what this guy's teaching is wrong. Oh, you're unloving. The minute you do that, you're dissing somebody. And again, this is really buying in, not to a biblical understanding of truth and love and correction, etc., etc., but rather a worldly understanding, which in the world is just as inconsistent as the way these Christians treated this brother in the Lord, because the tolerant street is one way, just as it is with these folks when they talk to him. They're free to criticize him, but he's not free to criticize other people. Really? I wonder how much of this has to do with, well, two things. Number one, a lack of understanding of our own sinfulness and our need for correction. All of us all the time have needs. We all need to be corrected at times. But also, I mean, it, it's not just the fact that 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 we need to be correct. Now I've lost my train of thought. What was the other thing? Greg? Um, you had... <laughs> it happens to me all the time. It's I was so here. I was so taken by the idea you know, that I need to be two, corrected. <laughs> there were two things that are going on is what you said. You started out and uh, one of them is we all need 
to be corrected. And I think this is a lack of understanding. Uh, humility, did you mention humility or something? It's a lack of understanding that we need correction. And so um, when we are correction, if we don't correct it, we don't understand that then that means we end up pushing back. You're oh, violating me in some way. And I remember what the – thank you, Greg, for covering from me there. Um, there's a lack of love for truth. So we should desire more than anything else to conform ourselves to the truth. But I think people have other higher goals. They want to feel comfortable. They want to be liked. They, they want to do things their way. There could be any of those reasons – but when you have truth as your highest goal, then you don't mind being corrected mm -hmm. because you want to find the truth. I think people are protecting themselves from that for various reasons. And so that's another thing I think we need to recapture in the church, uh, a, an acknowledgement of our own fallibility and a love of truth. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, thank you, Greg. Nice to be back Amos. doing hashtag SDR Ask. <laughs> and thank you for your questions, Scott, Caleb, and McFly. We always appreciate hearing from you. You can send us your questions on Twitter with the hashtag STR Ask, or you can go through our website. Just go to the page with the hashtag STR Ask podcast, and you'll see a link there that you can click on, and it will take you right to a page where you can give us a question. We'd love to hear from you. And we hope to hear from you soon. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Music